You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. Season 1, Episode 31. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Well, hello there, and welcome back to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holthy, coming to you from the beautiful province of Alberta, Canada. In this episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast, I had an opportunity to touch base with Canadian immigration lawyer Robert Leong. Robert was instrumental in a very important federal court case that challenged the negative decision of Employment and Social Development Canada, and those of you who have applied for labor market impact assessments uh, through the Temporary Foreign Worker Program will be very familiar with that lovely government department. In fact, they have made it an absolute nightmare to obtain LMIAs for Canadian employers over the last year, uh, year or two years, really. Well, I had a chance to touch base with uh, Robert Leong, who practices in Vancouver uh, with the law firm of Lowen Company. And uh, Robert shared some great insight on some of the things that led up to that particular case and how it has actually impacted for the better our ability as lawyers to actually challenge those ridiculous refusals that ESDC has been kicking out for very inconsequential reasons. In the case uh, that he addressed at at the federal court, it was entitled Canadian Reformed Church of Cloverdale, BC. Robert talked with me a little bit about um, just why that case is important and how people can use it to, well, in effect, um, challenge what's what an officer has, uh, a decision that an officer has made. So uh, without any further ado, let's get to that interview with Robert Leong. In today's podcast, I have the opportunity to interview uh, one of uh, the, the good lawyers out there, Robert Leong, who practices with Lowen Company in Vancouver, British Columbia. And uh, Robert has been with the firm for over six years, but he's had quite an interesting path that's led him to, to, uh, to, to be working in, in the immigration field. And uh, I'm really happy to have uh, Robert join me. Welcome, Robert. Uh, thank you, Mark. Uh, pleasure to be here. Excellent. Well, as I indicated, Robert has had uh, quite an interesting path that's led him here. And it started with him graduating from the University of Newcastle upon Tyne in England with a Bachelor of Laws in, uh, with honours. And then uh, he was called to the Bar of England in Wales. After completing that, he returned to his native Singapore, where he practiced law for 15 years. And he had a number of different roles and responsibilities there, culminating in, in uh, you know, acting as the managing partner of a full-service law firm. So then, Robert, you told me that you had then immigrated to Canada. So what was the motivation to immigrate to Canada? Well, uh, I mean, obviously, there were different reasons, um, you know, wanting to have a different, uh, a, a change in environment, um, something different from my children. Um, a lot of motivating factors that motivate immigrants to come to Canada, I suppose. So, in a sense, uh, I, I do uh, understand um, how a lot of the immigrants feel when they first arrive. That makes perfect sense. 
Yeah. And so after you arrived in Canada, uh, you then went through the process of being admitted as a bar, uh, a Bear Stearns solicitor in British Columbia. Yes. And now you practice exclusively in the area of immigration law. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the requalification process was, um, uh, was an eye opener for me, but uh, it was interesting actually. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Now you have uh, have focused to some extent your practice um, on you know administrative law, and uh, mm-hmm. within within the immigration um, uh, area, and you indicated that you appear before the immigration division as well as the the immigration appeal division of the Immigration and Refugee Board of Canada. Mm-hmm. And you handle admis- uh, admissibility hearings, sponsorship appeals, and residency appeals, and the thing that I and this is really the reason why I wanted to get you on the podcast mm-hmm. is that you also appear before the Federal Court of Canada on administrative judicial review applications. And uh, in particular, the one that I consider you quite famous for um, is is the decision between the Canadian Reformed Church of Cloverdale, BC, and the Minister of Employment and Social Development Canada. And uh, that is the one that I wanted to bring you on to share, uh, to have you share some insight with all of the listeners of the podcast, because I love it. The decision is awesome. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm not going to give away the, you know, the uh, uh, too much right here at the beginning. Um, we're going to get into the details of that case and, and how it has really helped uh, significantly for those who are applying for labor market impact assessments uh, through the Temporary Foreign Worker Program in Canada. But we're going get, to get to that in a second. Um, okay. Maybe this next question is probably more obvious than, than with most of the other uh, uh, lawyers that, that I bring on the podcast. But how did you get into immigration? What made you want to focus on immigration versus you know, the other areas of, lo- of the law, especially given your years of, of background working um, you know, uh, in a general practice in, in Singapore? Yeah, I mean, you know, looking back, uh, sometimes uh, one cannot discount um, uh, sort of certain uh, guiding hands in, 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 in all of this. Um, when I first came to Canada, um, obviously, I had to go through the requalification process to become a lawyer in Canada, and that took a while. So, so initially, um, uh, you know, I was exploring what I might do in Canada, and and somebody actually suggested, well, why don't you look into becoming an immigration consultant? Because um, you don't have to be a lawyer to do that. Um, but uh, with my uh, legal background and so I was quite familiar with uh, reading uh, legislation and regulations. I actually started on that path to become an immigration consultant. Uh, at the same time, trying to requalify as a lawyer. So that kind of started me in that direction. Huh. Well, that, mm-hmm. that makes perfect sense. And obviously, you've really taken to it. And uh, I see that you right now are, are are, are serving as an online instructor for the UBC Certificate in Immigration course. Uh-huh. And uh, you've also been actively involved with the Canadian Bar Association's immigration section. And for a couple of years there, you served as the secretary of the BC immigration section from 2013 to 2015. And, uh, you know, the media has pulled you in and you've had an opportunity to appear on radio and TV programs in Vancouver. And obviously with your, cost, your cross-cultural background and experience, like you identified, you are really ideally situated to to work with people from all over the world who are looking to immigrate to Canada because you've been through it. 
Yeah, I mean, it 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 is a very humbling experience, and and like I said, I mean, um, you, you know, I I'd like to give back uh, a little bit. Um, I I think I've benefited a lot from. Uh, opportunities thrown my way and um, you know wh- wherever I can be of assistance I, I try to do what I can yeah you bet and with that you know uh, I'm, I'm sure your 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 background is a, as a Christian and that that really envelopes a lot of, of who you are and and mm-hmm. uh, you know your desire to give back and to to, to serve and to help other people and um, I know that you've indicated that you serve uh, as a board member of uh, the Breakthrough Missions Canada, which is a registered Canadian charity that seeks to help people that are struggling with addictions. And, and through the, the message and love of Jesus Christ, you're able to, uh, you know, that, that's the whole mandate of that, of that group. So can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, I mean... Um I've been involved in that charity right from the onset, uh, from the time they um, started um, uh, registration as a society. Um, it's actually an offshoot of um, a similar um, uh, a similar ministry from Singapore as well. So, you know, a lot of it, um, you know, when I put things together and look uh, with hindsight, it's really sort of... Um, uh, I feel God leading me in a certain direction and using the the gifts that He's given me and the skills that I have to uh, to really um, uh, be what I can to to help people um, and, and obviously to um, give a taste of what um, uh, believing in God is all about. Awesome. You know, to a large extent, and I, I, I don't uh, talk too much about my, my religious background on the podcast, and obviously that's yeah. not the purpose of the podcast, but, but I'll agree with you. A lot of, you know, pretty much everything that I am today, I, I attribute to my, to my relationship with, uh, with my, my Father in Heaven, and, uh, and so it's, uh, yeah, it really colors everything, even your desire to, you know, to just make the world a little bit better and to help those around us, and, you know, whether uh, individuals have a... Uh, a belief in God or not, you know, I think most of us immigration practitioners, we get into this to genuinely help people. Mm-hmm. And as I've said time and time again on this podcast, just the ability to to make changes in people's lives and to help them to accomplish things that, that really make a difference, it's not only satisfying for us, but we get the benefit of, of people who are genuinely appreciative of their lawyer. And uh, that doesn't happen very often in other areas of the law. No, no, yeah. I mean, you know, this area of law, I mean, when one talks about fulfillment and practice, I mean, you can really have a lot of fulfillment uh, when you see the the faces of the clients who, you know, they reach the end of their journey uh, coming to Canada uh, through a long process for some of them. And uh, it's really, really... Um, you know, just hits you there and, and you know that, uh, you know, you've done your part to help them. Very cool. That's yeah. awesome. Well, let's dive into the real meat of our podcast here today. Mm-hmm. And as I hinted at the beginning, you were involved in a judicial review application of a decision of uh, ESDC and their Delivery Arms Service Canada, one of their officers refused an application uh, for the Canadian Reformed Church of Cloverdale, B.C., mm-hmm. for a very, very technical ground. 
And uh, without getting into to that just yet, mm-hmm. uh, I thought maybe what I'd do for our listeners is just give a little lead-in through um, by introducing this this temporary foreign worker program that is administered by ESDC, and in particular the the labor market impact assessment. And uh, you know, for for most of our listeners that are listening to this podcast, this will be old news to them. But some who are just tuning in and are wondering, you know, what is this foreign worker program all about? Well. As we know, Canadian companies, um, when they are trying to find individuals to fill positions for them, sometimes they can't find Canadians. They can't find uh, you know, permanent residents who are available to take those positions. So then they have a desire to reach outside of our borders and, and try to, uh, to hire uh, foreign nationals to fill these positions. Well, ESDC governs the labor market impact assessment process uh, under the Temporary Foreign Worker Program. And it is the process where employers have to uh, show or prove that they cannot find Canadians uh, before they're granted permission through the issuance of this labor market impact assessment to then go out and hire someone from abroad. And uh, the government over the years has really tightened this up. And one of the areas that they have really used to, I guess, turn down the tap a little bit or to make it more difficult for companies to hire outside of Canada is through the use of minimum advertising requirements. Mm-hmm. And this goes right to the heart of the decision that you took to the federal court. Maybe, Robert, you could just take a few minutes just to explain what these minimum advertising requirements are from you know both a legal and a policy standpoint. Certainly. Um, so, so this is interesting because... Um, uh, very frequently when when anyone launches into this uh, labor market impact assessment process, they immediately go to the um, ESDC website and, and look at the guidelines. Um, you know, but for us as lawyers, I mean, really the first place to start is really the act or regulations. And when one looks at the regulation, um, so there are certain provisions that uh, that state that uh, an immigration officer will not, shall not issue a work permit unless there's a positive determination uh, under uh, Regulation 203. And Regulation 203 um, is really the provision that empowers Service Canada to uh, look into whether the employment of the foreign national is likely to have a neutral or positive effect on the labor market. So that's the setting uh, on which the, in, uh, the the labor market impact assessment process uh, derives its roots from. Um, in particular, um, Regulation 203.3e states that in considering whether the employment of the foreign national will have a neutral or positive effect, um, one of the factors is they will consider is whether the employer will hire or train Canadian citizens or permanent residents or has made or has agreed to make reasonable efforts to do so. So from that, um, ESDC basically developed what they term as minimum advertising requirements in order to demonstrate that the Canadian employer has made reasonable efforts uh, to hire uh, Canadians. Um, When one looks at the minimum advertising requirements on the ESDC website, uh, they then 
sort of set out, uh, you know, in quite a long list of things that um, uh, has to be complied with. Um, you have to advertise in the job bank or provision, provincial counterpart, um, plus two other methods of recruitment, minimum of four weeks, uh, posted at least three months prior to the application. And then um, there's also a long list of what the advertisements must include. Um, so this was sort of breaking down um, in, in a lot of detail what ESDC deems uh, to meet that minimum advertising requirements in order to satisfy them that the employer has made reasonable efforts uh, to hire Canadians. So just, so, to, just to summarize then, so yeah. what you're saying is companies need to uh, not only post in these specific locations, and I think I'm on the website right now, and we mm -hmm. have you know, the job bank or provincial counterpart plus two or more additional methods consistent with the normal practice for the occupation. So not only do you have to post in those locations for the set period of time, a minimum of four consecutive weeks, mm -hmm. um, and in case you know, of, of the job bank, uh, you know, they want you to maintain that, that posting all the way through till a decision is made. But mm -hmm. on top of that, they have specific things that they want included within the advertisement? That's right. So the, the advertisements need to have um, uh, specific um, uh, information. For example, um, you need to have the location of the work in the advertisement. You need to have the business address of the employer in the advertisement. And, and that was really the crux of um, uh, how we litigated uh, that, that, uh, the case that we're talking about. So... Do you mind? Let me hear, why don't I read off what these ads are supposed to contain? Sure. So, so on the government's website, it indicates that the advertisement must. So anyone who's reading this assumes that it must. It's non-negotiable. Mm -hmm. So the advertisement must include the company operating name, the business address, the title of the position, job duties if advertising for more than one vacancy, the terms of employment, whether it's project-based or permanent, a permanent position, uh, the wage, and um, uh, uh, any benefits package that's being offered, like you indicated, the location of work, contact information, and they have here telephone number, cell, email, fax, or mailing address, and skills requirements, education and work experience. So, uh, so basically, what, what you're indicating, if a company does not have every single one of those things, then ESDC takes the position that they can refuse. That's correct. And, and in fact, when we litigated the matter, one of the, the, the directors of uh, ESDC um, uh, put in an affidavit that literally says that, that if um, any of the elements are missing, then, um, you know, uh, it's, it's taken that uh, there has been non-compliance with the minimum advertisement advertising requirements, and therefore there has not been reasonable efforts. Hmm. Why don't you take us through uh, a little bit of background information on on how the the you know the refusal resulted in terms of the Canadian Reformed Church of Cloverdale and that that case that you took forward. And I'll put a citation for this case in the show notes. But for those who are listening, it's 2015 FC. Uh, 
1075, 1075. Yeah, certainly. So, so this um, involved a, a church in Cloverdale in BC, and um, they had wanted to hire um, a translator um, to translate some of their um, uh, religious material text and uh, and and all that. Um, into a language that um, uh, they had a congregation starting in that particular ethnic group. Um, so they tried to do it one first time and got refused. Um, ESDC was not satisfied with uh, certain things. And then they did it a second time. Um, and obviously, um, this was round about the time when the program was tightened up uh, in the summer of 2014 when they introduced um, a whole host of uh, changes to the LMI process. But anyways, so with the second attempt, um, everything that the church did met the requirements of ESDC save but one. And that one little requirement was that the advertisement um, did not contain the business address of the church, although it contained the work location. So the advertisement tells potential applicants where you will be working, but the advertisement itself did not contain the business address of the church. And for that reason and that sole reason, the whole application was refused. And that's, that's the message that the officer relayed to the church was, unfortunately, I can't approve your application uh, because you did not include the business address. And was that uh, omitted from all of the ads or just one of them? Um, it was omitted. I, I think it was missing from most of the ads, I, I believe. Mm. I can't recall very clearly now, but certainly that that was, uh, we, we didn't really dispute that. I mean, we, yeah. we did say, yeah, it's it's not there, but um, but I think we, we made arguments um, that despite that, um, obviously we haven't met the reg, uh, regulatory requirements. And, and that was really the crux of the litigation. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about the decision then. So, what was interesting for me uh, in handling the matter was that um, um, in the course of uh, the litigation, we actually obtained certain uh, internal guidelines that ESDC has as part of their disclosure process. And uh, we were surprised to see that there were actually internal instructions to say, explicitly that um, if uh, any of the elements are not met, there is actually no flexibility um, given to the officer. So if you if the boxes are not checked straight away, you know, it's a refusal. So that was very troubling for us because um, uh, the main thrust of our argument was that uh, the guidelines fettered the officer's discretion. Yes. And um, another sort of um, troubling thing for us in the course of the litigation was that after the the application for leave and judicial review started, um, 
uh, ESDC had the opportunity to furnish um, affidavit evidence. And in the affidavit evidence that they provided, uh, there was actually attempts to bring in um, uh, additional reasons for the refusal. So, mm -hmm. so they actually tried to poke holes in, in, in the application, even though uh, on paper, the only reason for their refusal was just the lack of the business ad address. Huh. Yeah. So they tried to add reasons after the fact. They tried to add reasons after the fact, and, and we had to argue this before the, uh, the judge uh, to say, look, you know, um, that's really uh, one of the basic things you don't do in administrative law. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So we have, uh, in, in your case, you had Mr. Justice O'Reilly. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, although we could probably have a separate discussion about another decision that happened out in eastern canada I, I think you got the right the right justice for the uh for the case don't you think mm -hmm. yeah I, I think uh he was very uh uh you know uh, had a judicial temperament to to really uh, listen out to to all our arguments uh one of the things that actually i faced was that um Round about the time when the respondents put in their memorandum of arguments, and that was in January of 2015, that was when the Fatburger decision came out. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the Fatburger decision was released in January of 2015, and that was a 40-page decision by the Chief Justice of the Federal Court. And uh, we had a mountain to climb because that decision also dealt with refusals for lack of business address and also dealt with the argument that the officer had fettered uh, his or her discretion. And it was not in our favor. So that was fairly challenging for us to, to look at that and, and to be able to sort of... Um, uh, uh, raised the argument that despite that, um, in in our particular case, there was a feathering. Um, if, if I can use an analogy, this I think uh, analogy to Tai Chi, this is a sort of a we call it a rollback technique, where instead of hitting that decision head on, we effectively in our arguments absorbed that and did not disagree with Fatburger, but rather use that and, and analyze that to, uh, to our advantage. Um, because the argument was that, that we put forth was that, yes, guidelines are uh, very good. They have public uh, benef uh, benefits. Um, they can uh, be useful t for a reasonable interpretation of legislation only in so far as they do not conflict with the regulations. So for that, there can be no argument because the guidelines cannot trump the regulations. And, and that's really where um, we managed to, I think, uh, convince uh, the judge. Hmm. So in the in the decision, then um, obviously we're we're 
you know, the, the review of the officer's decision, it was found to be a fettering. Can you explain that a little bit, this whole concept of, of uh, you know, fettering an officer's discretion? Certainly. So, um, you know, in, in, in most uh, sort of uh, administrative decisions, uh, the officer um, sees with the making the decision has a discretion um, to look at uh, the application before him or her um, and then to use whatever legislation or guidelines available in order to arrive at a decision that, um, you know, meets the test of reasonableness and um, is able to sort of enunciate those reasons. Um, an argument of fettering is where um, the officer is sort of bound uh, by uh, certain guidelines where, um, you know, it's sort of uh, almost like a sort of a robotic sort of uh, a, a situation where, you know, if I face with, face with this situation, the guidelines tell me I have to do this. So there is no exercise of discretion on the part of the officer and the officer has to abide by the guidelines. So that's really... In the crux, the what a fettering argument is about. Gotcha, mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense. So, just to recap for our listeners, um, the main reason that the officer gave for refusing this this decision uh, was the lack of business address, and the only reason the officer refused on that basis is because that's what the internal ESDC guidelines told her to do. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, Justice O'Reilly confirmed in the decision there, I see, um, that, you know, he also acknowledged that the officer appears to have treated the guidelines as mandatory obligations, which, of course, she would, right? That's her, that's her job. That's what she's been instructed to do. Right. Um, but, but the, you know, but the, uh, but Justice O'Reilly confirmed that that indeed was a fettering of discretion mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, and therefore resulted in that decision being unreasonable. So, uh, so that's really the, the, the crux of this case. Mm -hmm. And so what is your advice then for companies who have run into a similar situation where they have posted their advertisements and when it comes to filing the application, they realized, oh, oh no, <laughs> we, we have forgotten, um, you know, to include whether the position is project-based or a permanent position, or maybe uh, we forgot to include the benefits package in the advertisement. What, uh, you know, what options do they have available to them? Is there anything that they can do to preempt or, you know, or, or to, um, you know, to overcome this? Uh, and maybe to some extent, even without having to go and file a judicial review decision, you know, if, if an officer does refuse for that sole purpose. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, here's where I would say that, you know, I think certainly uh, employers who have tried going through the LMI process on their own will see the benefit of hiring a professional to do it. Um, and if employers are not familiar with the process, it really doesn't serve their purpose, I mean, in terms of time and cost to try and figure things out on their own. Um, you know, however, if, if they do decide to do it on their own and they find that um, they suddenly realize that they haven't complied with um, the guidelines, I mean, 
although we've we fought this in court and we know what the legal position is, I, I usually try to say, let's take the path of least resistance, uh, weighing the, the, the cost and the time involved. Because, I mean, taking a case to, to judicial review takes time. Um, How long and- did it take, uh, Robert, to actually get the decision from the date of the refusal of the of the LMIA application. Yeah. So once a refusal is made, so the, the applicant has 15 days to file a judicial review. From the time of filing the judicial review application to the time of the hearing, there could be anything around six months in, in Vancouver. Uh, it varies uh, according to region. Uh, but in Western Canada, that's about six months. Um, but Justice O'Reilly actually took, I think he took about two, over two months to deliver his decision. So that was tagged on another two months to that six months. So it was about eight to nine months before we finally got the decision. And then the matter sent back to to ESDC to redetermine. So um, it's it's nice to have the decision, um, but for I mean, if if we're looking at the the employer and saying, okay, let's let's weigh the cost benefit. Uh, sometimes it might be uh, worthwhile for them to sort of go in and fix that advertisement and restart it again, um, uh, just because it might be faster or cheaper. Now, uh, cheaper is really relative because, as we now know, I mean, um, it's a thousand dollars for per position. For the application, so if you're advertising for 50 positions, and that application is going to cost you 50,000 right off the bat just with application fees, and if it's refused for a technical reason like this, then that might be worthwhile to go ahead and challenge that. That makes perfect sense, and I think, and I can't remember the the name of the decision, but there was one following yours out in Eastern Canada. Uh, where that was the situation, where mm-hmm. there was many positions that were affected uh, for this company. I think it was within the fish processing industry. And mm-hmm. I can't remember the name of the case right off the top of my head, but, uh, but it was similar to, to that. And, um, and it also dealt to some extent with, um, in that case, I, think, I believe it was wages and the prevailing wage rate. And uh, that company was successful. And so you're, you're absolutely correct. And I really like that advice too, Robert, because you may have a, a legal remedy available to you, but the practicalities of pursuing that in many cases, really, it just doesn't make sense. And we get decisions sometimes that are a little crazy at the ports of entry and the airports, and, you know, in the land border crossings. And, mm-hmm. you know, yes, you could judicially review a decision, but sometimes for the benefit of, of our clients, it just makes sense to just take a step back, figure out what the officer had a concern with, even though that concern may or may not be, you know, binding uh, and just trying to, to do what you can to meet um, those expectations so that you can get the result that you need. And so I, I really like that advice. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, I think the program is also still in the flux now because uh, with uh, Minister McCallum saying that he's going to look at um, the temporary foreign worker program. And I think, I think it was yesterday that the standing committee actually came out with a report uh, on the temporary foreign worker program and came up with a list of recommendations 
for changes, uh, this is going to be in a state of flux and who, who knows what <laughs> what will change next. Uh, so there's something to always keep uh, a lookout for. You bet. Mm-hmm. Well, when we get our hands on that report, I will make sure that I include that within the show notes as well here of, uh, of, our, of our podcast. Mm-hmm. Well, um, maybe in conclusion, do you have any other additional tips or strategies that you can offer our listeners on, on navigating this advertising component of, of the LMIA process? Anything you'd like to share? Um, just, I mean, you know, the path of least resistance uh, sometimes means that, um, you know, whatever's on the website, you know, we, we just follow that doggedly. Um, and in a way, you're, you're not giving them an opportunity to refuse. Um, and um, uh, sometimes it's difficult. Uh, sometimes uh, we come up with certain situations that require us to sort of think out of the box a little bit, but um, really just sticking to those guidelines as much as possible, um, that's really all I can say. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. Well, thank you so much, Robert. I really, really appreciate you sharing some insight on, uh, on the Cloverdale case and, and just this whole concept of fettering of officers' discretions and how it impacts people who are trying to access the temporary foreign worker program in Canada. Um, I know that people are going to be interested if they do run into problems and do need some legal assistance to, to overcome some challenging decisions. They're going to think of, you know, who are these lawyers who are getting success for their clients? And, <laughs> and you definitely, you know, obtained a wonderful decision there for the, for the church. Um, how can people reach you? What's the best way for them to, to get in contact with you? Yeah, we're on the Internet. Um, so just look us up. Uh, our website is uh, canadavisalaw.com. And uh, yeah, should be able to find us there. Perfect. That sounds great. Well, thanks so much, Robert. I really appreciate you taking some time to visit with us. And I wish you all the best in the future. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Okay. Take care. Well, that was a great interview with Robert. Once again, I really appreciate all of these guests that come on my podcast to share insight, valuable insight on this crazy world of Canadian immigration. You know, when I think about Robert and some of the advice he gave, especially um, when I asked him if he had tips and strategies for employers who are navigating this LMIA process, um, one of the things I found most noting and most worth addressing is, uh, is his advice that sometimes even though you have a legal remedy and you can proceed forward with a judicial review and you can challenge an officer's decision, that in many cases, it just makes more sense to reapply, to address whatever the officer's concerns are, and make sure that you apply each of those policy rationales explicitly when you are submitting an LMIA application. So although he was successful in obtaining a really good result for his client at federal court, he was able to demonstrate that the officer's decision was unreasonable and that they had um, erroneously allowed their discretion to be fettered by their own policies that in many cases, and this is the advice I'd have to give to all of you as well, even though there may be a legal remedy, it just makes sense to pay close attention to what is being asked right at the onset. 
And so Robert also indicated that sometimes it's good to, to hire counsel that know what they're doing that can help you so that you avoid these situations. And every day, immigration is becoming more and more complicated, more complex, and the consequences are, are increasingly devastating for not only individuals, but employers as well that are desperate to have people. So um, with that being said, I would also encourage any out there that do have circumstances that just cry out for, you know, for, for a remedy um, where the decision of an officer is just so unreasonable that, you know, that it just makes sense for the betterment of everybody involved in immigration to challenge that decision in federal court. I'd encourage you to do that. And obviously, if it wasn't for the fact that Robert uh, represented uh, the, this Canadian Reformed Church of Cloverdale, we wouldn't have this decision. And there are others out there that are very favorable that, that tell officers that they, they actually have to, to abide by the law and not just their own internally created policies. So thanks once again for, for Robert, who joined me um, on the podcast today. He really provided a lot of great insight, and I know it'll be helpful for everyone. So thanks a lot for listening, and all of you listeners, check, it out, check us out on iTunes. Please feel free to leave a rating, and if you have any suggestions on other people that you think might be great to have on the podcast, or you even have some topic ideas, don't hesitate to reach out to me, and you can find me pretty much everywhere. So send me an email, connect with me on Facebook or LinkedIn, um, Twitter, whatever it may be. I love to hear from you. Thanks once again for following, and uh, yeah, subscribe and share with everyone that you know. Take care and I will talk to you again as you uh, and I go forward trying to navigate this crazy world of Canadian immigration law, policy, and practice. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, your trusted source for information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. If you would like to contribute a question for future podcasts or wish to set up a legal consultation with Mark, please visit www.ht-llp.com. your phone